Raoul Peck comes across this 30-page unfinished manuscript that really uh-huh. that that James Baldwin was connecting those dots between Medgar Evers and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and how they were all getting closer I mean there was really some friction between Malcolm and and, and him it was kind of interesting to see in the that. beginning yeah yeah, and, and yeah philosophically but you know they became endeared to one another because I mean you know when people are fighting for freedom and you're seeing what's happening around you, eventually you realize, I, uh, I'm supposing that, you know, you're better off forming... Um, a coalition. <laughs> coalitions or liaison, right. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, because you all want the same thing. You're just approaching it. Your approach is different. Right, yeah. and as a younger guy, I, would been, I was thinking he looked maybe a little bit younger than uh, James Baldwin. Malcolm X did. Perhaps right. Maybe yeah, there was a little bit of that. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Hey, exactly. what are you young kiddo talking to me about? Now, Raoul Peck is such an interesting man in, in, in and of himself. He's really created what I would call an essay, uh, not even a film. I mean, he doesn't want to entertain anybody and have them consume this thing over a decade in the making. And, right. and, um, and he says, uh, and I wanted to ask you this as well, uh, Raoul Pack uh, says that sometimes people ask him, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And he's, Raoul says it doesn't matter because whether I have a future or not, it's not for me to decide. And I love the way that Baldwin himself says in the, in the documentary, I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. I'm forced to be an optimist. Have you right. ever thought about, you seem like an optimist to me. You're not an unaware, blindly being optimist, naively, but you sounds like you have hope. Um, yeah, of course I'm an optimist. I mean, I think, I think one of the main reasons that my uncle was an optimist was not only because he was alive, but he had a family that looked up to him, a family that um, uh, he considered himself responsible for. He was the oldest of nine children um, and uh, had eight younger brothers and sisters and a slew of nieces and nephews who he often mentioned. You know, you know, Letter to My Nephew um, Mm -hmm. is one of his most famous essays uh, from the fire next time. And when you hear him speak, he often says, I can't tell my niece and my nephew. So I think it comes from a sense of responsibility to the next generation to be an optimist. I'm a mother. And so I have to look at the world with, um, uh, not just hope, but a sense that, you know, things, uh, will continue to work themselves out because, there is someone from another generation, not only my daughter, but my nieces and nephews and the young men and women that I mentor, that if I give up, you know, what hope do they have? You understand what I'm saying? I totally do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when you're part of a larger community and you um, become an elder or you are someone in the community that people look up to or um, look to for a sense of guidance and direction, um, it behooves you to keep a positive outlook um, while being aware of the many realities that exist that one has to grapple against. So, you know, I'm constantly, you know, um, uh, questioning and challenging, you know, white supremacy, the idea of whiteness itself, like what is it and is it necessary and why do we, the same way my uncle did, why is whiteness even something that, is used as a measure, you know, for the rest of humanity to compare themselves to. 
I'm always um, pushing the envelope and insisting that folk deal on a human-to-human level um, as opposed to race. You know, you know, I'm very proud, you know, African-American, African, my dad being from West Africa, American woman, that's my culture. You know, that's, you know, that's where, the, you know, something that is a frame of reference. But, you know, I grew up in a very different Africa. The Africa that I grew up um, being a part of had Germans and, you know, Lebanese and, you know, Eastern Europeans and uh, Swedes and, you know, all kinds of people who were part of the community. So I am very much socialized towards humanity, to being part of a human family and being a global citizen, the same way my uncle was. I mean, when you look at his fight and his and his philosophy and his debates and what you saw him, the life he actually lived was a very multicultural, multiracial one in terms of how he moved through the world. So he lived in Turkey. He spent time in Switzerland. He lived in France. He had a home in south of France. His world was always uh, a world that reflected his, his ideology of you know, all men and women are brothers and sisters, and we are part of a human family. He didn't sequester himself and just insist that he just be part of a black community. That wasn't who he was. And so I didn't grow up like that either, you know. So yeah. you, ha- you sort of exist in these two worlds where you're constantly, you know, bringing to people's attentions the absurdities of race, racism and white supremacy, but you live in the world you know, where, you know, my best friend is from Croatia. I mean, you know, she's like a sister to me, you know, and, you know, she, her culture, interestingly enough, and how she was raised is very similar to mine, you know, Um, and those are the connections that people should be focusing on as opposed to these artificial barriers and markers that we've created to separate one another. So I think you know, that's who he was, and that's how he operated, and that's how I operate. Uh, I think he's a very important teacher. There was a time where, you know, at least one of his books was required required reading in junior high school. You know, I remember being in high school. I remember his books being on the list of to-read books, and that has changed greatly over the last 20, years. You mean years. Not, not teaching in, in, in junior high, not having him on the list? Right, he's not, yeah. you know, and a lot of other people have are not. There's just reading in general, entire books has diminished um, a lot in, you know, most public schools, um, maybe in private schools, you know, they have better access to certain um, great writers, um, but it's decreased, and that's something that I, you know, uh, would like to work on, is seeing his work return to schools or just, that kids have exposure to his writing yeah. at an earlier age because I feel like you are most impressed, uh, uh, you know, impressed or, you know, at around 12, 13, the wonder years. Very impressionable, right. A, yeah, when you're coming of age and that's when your consciousness is developing and you learn things about race and culture that inform the rest of your adulthood. You know, by the time you turn 18, a lot of people kind of, have figured out, you know, their social, you know, strata, where they are in the social strata. And I think if you read Baldwin, you know, as I did very young, it has a deep impact. But when you come to him, you know, sort of like in Freshman English 101, and you don't have an art, you know, a cultural or artistic background, or you don't have a civil rights awareness of the civil rights movement, 
you know, it has an impression and then you move on. Right. But when you're young, when you're like 12, it could really change you and, and impact you, you know, for, you know in, for the good. Yeah, and in the uh, documentary, uh, you're going to have to help me remember exactly how it worked out. But in Baldwin's school days, he had a very influential teacher. Uh, it sounds like she was guiding him through this impressive list of books to read. I, I think Dostoevsky's right. The Idiot was among them. And right. I, I'm, I'm just shocked that she... I'm, and I'm gratified that she could see something in James Baldwin that she could become a part of and, you know, kind of enter into some sort of superior spiritual teachings. I mean... A lot of people I know have that favorite teacher who had a deep impression on them when they were young, maybe not to that extent where they went as far as she did in terms of taking him to plays and movies and trying to expand his his consciousness in terms of the world around him, you know, that was probably, you know, an act of, of, of divine providence, uh, providence or something. Yeah. You know, when you meet somebody like that at that age and they, and they go above and beyond, I mean, she was a special woman. But again, with teaching, you know, it, it, people who really understand the impact that they have on children, I think, should be doing those things. And I've heard people who have hearkened back to you know, teachers who had that kind of impression on them and did things for them and did special, you know, projects with them. And, you know, there's the woman, a famous a woman who did the experiment of on race in her class where she separated, um, I don't know her name, but it's a very famous experiment. It was uh, uh, elementary school children, all white children, and she wanted to teach them about racism. And she separated the class according to different markers physical markers to get them to understand what it was like to be discriminated against based on your color. And it changed the children's life. They went back, um, they interviewed the people as adults and talked about how this teacher had a great impact on them because she cared enough to teach them about what it was like to discriminate against somebody based on something like skin color, but she chose other things, hair color, eye color. And it just made you aware, them. right, right. Yeah, and, yeah. and it changed their lives. Yeah. They just, it, you, when you talk to them as adults now and as parents, they never forgot this teacher. So I think that, you know, there are teachers out there who get what my uncle's um, elementary school teacher got, that your job as a teacher is to inspire and to um, influence and, um, you know, your, the, the lives of these impressionable young people in front of, of in front of you. You know, the, one of the reasons that that uh, story struck me so to the heart was that in my junior days, uh, junior high school, I had a teacher who saw something in me, and did we did that very thing once a week. She would uh, sit down with me. She gave me a reading list, and Dostoevsky was on it, and mm-hmm. <laughs> just you know, and and once a week we would sit out on the park bench, you know, school on the school grounds, have lunch and discuss the chapters I'd read and that's that is you know when I heard that Mm -hmm. that was his story I just went okay I really like this man so much (laughs) right exactly yeah Yeah, so um your relationship to your uncle is obviously very very uh, it I didn't realize the depth of it it's so it's so interesting to hear uh if you could sort of say in a sentence or two who is James Baldwin why is he important what would you? How would you respond to that? Well, first and foremost, what a lot of people forget, and because they focus on his fame and his notoriety so much, 
that he was first, first and foremost uh, a son, a beloved son, my grandmother's oldest um, oldest child, and also uh, a very close confidant to her uh, because my grandfather died, and um, he became the man of the house. So he was a, he, he felt a great responsibility to his family to take care of my, my grandmother, um, his mom, and his brothers and sisters. So that weight was upon him when he left uh, America um, at 24, around the age of 24, with $40 in his pocket. He's also a witness and a, and a, and a prophet um, and someone who uh, stood up uh, to speak truth to power about the issues that faced us as a nation um, uh, and as fellow citizens who shared and lived in the same house, so to speak. He was a concerned citizen um, and uh, a great uh, visionary, you know, someone who understood that if you do not take care of these issues that are facing you, you are doomed to, you know, a kind of... uh, reconciling that uh, might not be very attractive, and we're facing that right now. Exactly. You know, in fact, what Raul Peck uh, says, that, that we are all in this process together, and right. and concerned citizens, Raul Peck sees us all as being concerned citizens and active citizens, and that's what a lot of people now are are realizing that we have to do. Right, right, right. I mean, growing up in the household that I grew up in, it was never a question to me about whether and what my role was in society um, and what what my responsibility was because I grew up in a home of people who were active. You know, they had no choice. They were African-American citizens who, you know, were not uh, given their full, you know, uh, rights as citizens. And, you know, my uncle was at the forefront of that uh, that fight and that, you know, um, call to attention of how African-Americans were being treated. But a lot of people kind of look at being an activist as something separate and other than being a citizen. And, uh, you know, Raul Peck talks about how we're all activists. His, his work as a filmmaker is his act. He may not be on the front lines of a, a protest or it at in Ferguson or in Baltimore or in, but his film acts as you know, uh, you know, a form of activism. And each of us, in whatever way, shape, or form we can, or whatever profession we're in, or whatever walk of life we have chosen, can make our um, lives part of you know activism because. Saying someone is an activist is pretty much saying you're over there doing the work and I'm sitting here watching you. Right. So we're all being called to, you know, if someone is a journalist, um, that that is a way for, for people to speak out on injustice that they see. And it's very important because, you know, what people are seeing now is that those who came to this country as immigrants, you know, maybe didn't feel any connection to black Americans and what they were experiencing, the stop and frisk. It wasn't happening to them. You know, the um, the racial discrimination, the racial profiling, you know, they kind of saw that as our problem. And now that the situation is impacting them, they may be able to see now, wow, we had people telling us that this was being done to them, but we didn't see it as, uh, as important because it wasn't impacting us. And now that it is impacting them, you know, there are people who are going to see the film who are like, wow, now I understand the historical perspective 
and what African Americans have been talking about because so many people come to this country and they don't have a historical perspective. Uh, so you are now in the limelight, Aisha. <laughs> Not really. No? I mean, you know, well, a I little mean, bit? I've, been doing, I've been doing this a long time. I had nothing to do with the movie, so I'm very happy that Raul is in the limelight and he's getting recognition because he's been making movies for decades. And he's a fantastic filmmaker, and his filmography is long. And I encourage your audience to check out his other films, like Man on the Shore, Mala Tropical, Fatal Assistance, which is about the post-earthquake, uh, uh, um, uh, the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti, and what happened with all that assistance money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a wonderful documentary. And Lumumba, which he's most well-known for, but he's a fantastic filmmaker, and his films are beautiful, and um, he didn't just arrive at this place with I Am Not Your Negro all of a sudden with this, you know, fantastic film. He has a long history, and I'm so happy that he's finally getting the recognition that he deserves. Well, and, and I have to say that uh, choosing Samuel L. Jackson to to go into character, I'm going to leave it for mm-hmm. the audience to see, but I'd forgotten that that's how his voice was used, and he's got such an amazing voice, but he used it not as Samuel L. Jackson, very but well. and yeah, I also well. and I also have to say that uh, I encourage everybody of every age to go see this thing. I was shocked oh, by shocked by the footage because it's like nothing's changed, you know. Yeah. And and when you see that playing out in front of you, you're going, mm-hmm. "How can this be?" You know, kind of like right. what Raul was rhetorically asking. You know, this can't be, but it is. After right. eight years of Obama, you know, you have kids who their only president they've known was Obama. So after eight years of Obama in a certain kind of mood, although things were taking place under that as well, you know, they're faced all of a sudden with some stuff that they don't understand, and the movie will give them, um, you know, a, a way of understanding historically, from a historical perspective, um, why some of the things that they're still facing are happening. What I encourage uh, our my listeners to do is see it once, because I cried and wept through so yeah. much of the film that I lost, I had to go see it again. It right. requires several viewings and reading, uh, going back and reading and rereading the James Baldwin work because yeah, it's so absolutely. important. So uh, I think that this is going to be one of those things that you want to own in whatever whatever software or <laughs> the platform you like to use to watch do watch your films. You know, well, but also go back to James Baldwin's writing. Definitely. Raul always talks about how we need to go back to Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And that has always been, when I go and speak, I've been speaking at schools, um, universities. uh, You know, uh, last year in Paris, uh, the year, not this past summer, but the summer before, there was a conference on James Baldwin hosted by the American uh, University in Paris. There have been symposiums. And whenever I'm called to speak, and I've been doing this a long time, I always encourage people to read James Baldwin, read his work, not just Giovanni's Room, not just um, Go Tell It on the Mountain, uh, his novels, read his essays, read, you know, The Fire Next Time, uh, Nobody Knows My Name, No Name in the Street, you know, um, all of all of the stuff that he was talking about that speaks of the time that we're living in is in his writing. So the movie is a great introduction to the prescient nature of his writings. 
So, you know, if you find yourself sort of shocked after the movie and figuring out where to go from there, go back to Baldwin. Go back to his, his, his actual writings and his books. 